BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Welcome to episode 90 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I am your host, Jack Rico, and before I begin, I wanted to share some really good news. I wasn't able to talk about it before the announcement came out this week, but uh, for the last two months, I've been shooting a brand new show for NBC called Consumer 101. It's the first TV show from Consumer Reports, and uh, I'll be the host. It begins Saturday morning, October 6th. Not sure at what hour. I've been told 9, then I was told around 10.30. If I were you, I'd just check your local listings uh, that week, but it's going to be a half-hour show. 26 episodes, and I'm signed on for three seasons right now. Of course, you always want, you know, the first season to go well, see if they renew it, et cetera, et cetera. It's all TV stuff. But uh, there was talk of doing a Telemundo version. That's been put on hold for now. The show is being produced by a company called Litton Entertainment, and they're known for creating the best family programming on television Today, they've won so many Emmy Awards, and I feel blessed to be working with some of the most talented producers in the TV industry. The show is about uh, science, science behind the products we use every single day, like your refrigerator, uh, your grill, bike helmets, cars, uh, everything that you can possibly touch with your hands, we'll probably be talking about it. And some of the questions we ask are, how do they really work, these products? How does Consumer Reports test those products? Who tests them and how does it help consumers? I take a close look at the labs and machines that people rarely get to see. If you want to be a smarter consumer, then hopefully you can join me on this new show every Saturday morning beginning October 6th. And uh, I've done about six episodes that's already in the can. There's another 16 episodes I have to do to end season one. But I'm so curious to see what you guys think of it. And uh, please leave me your feedback. If uh, you listen to the podcast, I am at Twitter at Jack Rico Official. That is Jack Rico Official. Or on Instagram at Jack Rico. With that said, today we're going to be talking to Rotten Tomatoes. They are the premier movie aggregator site of movie reviews. Uh, They recently came out in the New York Times. They've been making a lot of buzz in Hollywood right now because they just finished overhauling their new rules to allow more diverse voices, meaning more women and minorities, to be a member of their site. Why did they do this? What took them so long? And will Spanish language be allowed on the site? I had spoken originally to the editor-in-chief in in episode 34. You can go back and check that out. We had talked about that, but I've been one of the victims 
I was on Telemundo Univision doing Spanish language movie reviews. Then I uh, went to the Today Show, started doing that. I obviously have my own website. I've done so many movie reviews, including here on this podcast, and they've said, no, if you're not working for, I don't know, the Hollywood Reporter Fandango, uh, we're not going to put you on. So I've always had a problem with them with that. uh, And hopefully this time around, hey, you never know. I might be on Rotten Tomatoes too. Then I chat with Latina journalist Victoria Leandra, who co-wrote a recent Bloomberg article, which I was quoted on, on why Latinos still don't have a movie on the level of Crazy Rich Asians or Black Panther. Is it a lack of Latino talent or is it prejudice? We kick it off with Jacqueline Coley from Rotten Tomatoes. Joining me now is Jacqueline Coley. She's an editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast, Jacqueline. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So big news coming out of Los Angeles. Rotten Tomatoes um, is revamping their eligibility rules, uh, which it's interesting why that happened now. It's been covered by many outlets, including the New York Times. Why is this news? Well, I mean, I'm glad that it's news as I feel that we put a lot of hard work into making this new revamped critics criteria um, the best one possible. So I'm glad that people decided to write about it. But I think in general, film criticism and the conversation around criticism has been something that has been kind of a touch point of our sort of entertainment existence for a while now. People have been discussing not just the movies, but who they're made for, who they're marketed for and who gets to comment on them. And as a member of that ecosystem, with the current, I think, necessary focus to diversity and how that affects uh, the life of a film, um, the folks here at Rotten Tomatoes really thought that, you know what, we have a chance to make sure that in every way possible, we are able to play our part in a positive way to foster good change. So um, that's why we revamped the critics criteria. And it's been a process that's been, um, I know it's been in the news maybe for the last, I would say like six to nine months, but this process for what we just launched has actually been at the works here for a little over 18 months. And 18 about months? Yeah, 18 months has this been a quote-unquote, you know, you talk about this as a corporate project, and then the real work to sort of like retool it and and talking with critics, talking with various folks, it's been about a year, Um, and I just really have to put my hats off to uh, Jenny Johini. She is the critics relations manager here at Rotten Tomatoes. This has been basically her job since day one, and then um, again, it was a focus long before she arrived, because obviously hiring her was like, the first part of the of the process. What was the big problem before with Rotten Tomatoes and its uh, eligibility rules? Um, was it that there were too many white film critics and not enough minority <laughs> critics? Well, I don't think there was a problem um, previously. I think what we sort of saw is that our tomato meter is a 20-year product. And um, I would say that... When it was initiated 20 years ago, it was built for that. It was built for print media. It was built for publications where folks were hired. And as the film landscape has sort of morphed and changed, it's actually gotten better because now you have freelancers, you have new media. There's so many different voices and avenues and opportunities that folks can go to find an informed decision about what they want to see on a Friday night. And this new revamped critics criteria helps us 
respond to that change. So we still had new media folks on the tomato meter prior to this revamp. It's just, again, we looked at our criteria and said, hey, did we inadvertently put some barriers to folks being able to apply? And did we make it really loud and proud that, hey, there's a lot of folks out there who are actually eligible with the work and the commitment and the quality that they're doing, but our previous criteria was maybe off-putting to them to even attempt to apply. And I, for example, before I started working at Mm -hmm. Rotten Tomatoes, am an example of that. I was working for a publication. We were small but mighty. We focused on women and and, uh, women of color particularly. And we just didn't apply because I just said to myself, well, we're not there yet. And then when we met with the folks with Rotten Tomatoes, they're like, yes, you are there. You meet our criteria. You are somebody whose voice we absolutely want on the tomato meter. And then the application process was the same as it is for everyone else. But I think um, the biggest part about this revamped criteria is the fact that we're making it so loud and, and again, speaking out exactly to what it is and being as transparent as possible. I think there's going to be a lot of folks out there who already meet the criteria and are now going to be emboldened to apply. Why do you think it's so important to have uh, a different array of voices, minority voices on Rotten Tomatoes? Well, I mean, when we talk about film and we talk about film criticism, it's, it's always a question of this is going to be sat in front of an audience. And when you have a product like a film or a television show and there's going to be an audience that consumes it, whether it's at home or in a movie theater, the folks that are able to comment on the conversation around that film should reflect the audience. So having minority voices, having diverse conversation makes a better product and working here at Rotten Tomatoes, our product is the tomato meter. So adding these voices, making it easier for them to feel that they have the agency to apply, all of this makes our product better. And the films that, for example, speak to a certain identity can have a chance to mm. be amplified and bubble to the surface. Let, let's be honest, the, the shifting chains in criticism has been happening for a while. It's been a focus that a lot of folks have talked about as far as, you know, a lot of people self-publish and you have folks that never worked at an LA Times but have a huge amount of influence in what people choose to see and again, we, we want that. We want to foster that. We want to make sure that we are participating in this new landscape. And uh, so, yeah, of course, of course, diversity is going to make all of that better. Now, what about language? Was that talked about in the meetings? Spanish, Chinese, um, French? I mean, there's so you know, many outlets been- that want to yep. sort of do criticism, but in their own language. Is that acceptable now in uh, Rotten Tomatoes? From what I understand, yes. We have foreign language folks that actually are on the tomato meter now. This current, the new criteria helps with them to remain on the, the tomato meter, even if they choose to Yeah, like Univision or Telemundo, you know, those are two exactly. big broadcast networks that cater to Spanish language Americans. So yep. that's what I was and- thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then also, you know, websites like uh, Ramel's, I'm going to say it Remezcla. wrong, Ramel's, Ramel's, thank you so much, <laughs> and apologize that I, that I studied no French problems. in school instead of Spanish, like that was the really great smart move, um, <laughs> but no, it's, and so I, I think you're exactly right, and, and that is definitely, the, the thing I will say about the critics' criteria is when you say to someone and you say, well, what about this type of critic, what about this type of avenue? They were so thoughtful and so careful with what we did as far as examining the criteria to make sure that not only does this work for today, but is this something that we can build upon to keep fostering 
positive change because the worst thing we could have done, I feel personally, would be to create something that looks good right now. But when we look at it 10 years from now, mm. it's going to negatively affect these marginalized communities and these diverse communities that we're trying to foster and amplify. And the one thing I have supreme faith in is, again, when there was a lot of conversation going on, the folks behind the scenes here kept their eyes on the prize, which is that we're not trying to make a product to comment on anything or to respond to anything. We're trying to make a product that is going to be sustainable, that is going to foster great change. And so I have faith that the changes that we made, that they're able to build upon. And this is going to be an ever-growing process. This is this is maybe what some people consider Rotten Tomatoes 2.0. It's actually like Rotten Tomatoes like 6.5s mm-hmm. and we're going to have 6.8 and we'll have 7.0. This is going to be like it's going to be like a software update in a lot of ways. We're going to keep <laughs> making sure because criticism changes. Um the criticism that happened with Siskel and Ebert is different than the criticism that happened in the 1940s and 50s with major right. publications and it's going to continue to evolve as long as people continue to evolve the way we make films. I mean, just look at the films themselves. They're having they had an evolution as well. What tastes were in the 1930s have completely shifted to what they are in the 2000s and i think the conversation around that should also be able to move and and, uh, shift with the times i had matt actually um on the show in episode 34 we're up to 90 now so it's been a while since i've spoken to him but one of the challenges when i confronted him about this same topic the problem that he faced was how to handle Film critics who are now using the platforms of social media like Twitter and just are reviewing movies on Twitter. Well, I think currently, as far as the the new as far as the revamp criteria, one of the sort of best things that we did is we did allow now we allow podcasts um, and we previously allowed video, but there's going to be sort of a broadening in the sense of we're going to actively seek out new media. Um, But as of yet, and again, I'm going to defer to maybe Jenny and the folks at Rotten Tomatoes, I don't believe that the Twitter, like putting a tweet out is what currently will constitute what's on the tomato meter. We're still looking for four major criteria, which is a commitment to film criticism, quality, is it edited, do you speak to a demographic or voice, especially one from a marginalized community. All the criteria that we had as far as judging someone um, for credentialing upon the tomato meter exists in these new forms but i will say as far as the twitter reviewer we have not gone there yet right now we're sticking with obviously the printed word and online media podcasts and then video so i'm a critic i'm um, a minority film critic and i want to be on rotten tomatoes what is the first step that one needs to do do i email somebody in particular uh is the information on the website what do I have to submit in order to be uh, considered? Well, that's a great question. Um, the first thing I will say is there all the information that I just sort of broad stroked over is definitely on our website. We have a great big shiny banner, new voices on the tomato meter, which outlines the new criteria. And then we also have a link to a detailed breakdown of what criteria we're looking for with someone to be on the tomato meter i we have a list of every critic that we have to where you could go to their website see their work and see if it if your media your work and what you contribute to film criticism aligns with maybe one of the folks that are already on the tomato meter mm-hmm. you can be like well this person looks just like me so yeah i should definitely try to apply they have the same um 
type of film criticism and they're publishing maybe in the same way at the same outlets. And then the last thing I would say is yes, reach out, apply. I mean, the, the best part about this process is how transparent we've been. If you apply, it's not going to be a cone of silence. There's someone on the other end who will be able to, if you're accepted, quickly respond as timely as possible, I should say, respond um, with whether or not you're able to join the tomato meter. And more importantly, if you're not, there will be there will be specific things that we would like to you to focus on as a way to help get you there. So it's not just like, no, you're not good enough, but it's like, no, this is, this is where you are. This is where we'd like you to be for you to be a member of our community. And, and having that transparency and that feedback, I think is going to be invaluable. So I would say if someone thinks they want to, they have the audience, they have the reach and they have the quality and commitment to film criticism to be on there, I would highly encourage them to go to the website, read up on it. And then if they feel they, they, they should be on there, definitely apply. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I appreciate you uh, sharing uh, a lot of the information that uh, we're all seeking right now. There's a lot of uh, film journalists. There's a lot of film critics. There's a lot of students that have aspirations of being film critics and they want to be on Rotten Tomatoes. They just don't know how to. And uh, I think you've pretty much explained uh, everything that they need to do. So thank you very much, Jacqueline. Thank you so much. Yes. Men, ever wonder what makes an awesome pair of underwear? Comfort is obviously at the top, but support plays a huge part too. Sax Underwear has combined these two components unlike ever before, creating what may be the most comfortable pair of underwear in the world. Simply put, Sax is designed differently. Their patented ballpark pouch has internal mesh panels that keep everything in place. When I put them on, it feels like there's extra space along with their super soft, moisture-wicking fabrics. I've been all about sex underwear since I discovered them a few months ago, and I really like the Vibe trunk. Best underwear I've ever worn, silky smooth, feels like you're not wearing anything. This is why I want you to try Saks as well. I work with Saks Underwear on a limited time deal just for you. Shop from anywhere on their site and get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. But you need to use my promo code HIGHLYRELEVANT at checkout. Order a few pairs of Saks right now with this great offer and go to Saks Underwear at saxxunderwear.com. That's Saks with two X's and use the promo code HIGHLYRELEVANT at checkout. Remember, saxunderwear.com, promo code HIGHLYRELEVANT. Crazy Rich Agents has been a massive hit in Hollywood, and it has also brought a positive and well-deserved attention to Asian Americans in this country. But what about Latinos? Why hasn't Hollywood embraced U.S. Hispanics with the same fervor, effusiveness, and positivity on the big screen? Victoria Leandra, co-writer of Bloomberg.com's recent article, Crazy Rich Success Leaves Latinos Waiting for Their Moment, and who is also now a multimedia producer at Vice News, joins me on the show. Welcome to the Highly Relevant Podcast, Victoria. Thank you, Jack, for giving me the opportunity to chat with you. I am very excited to be here. Well, uh, as I understand, this is your first podcast? It is. It is. So I am extra excited for that, as you can see. (laughs) (laughs) That is very cool. Um, Where did the idea to do this article come from? So... Of course, I was looking as a journalist, I am in a newsroom all day, every day. I was looking at all these headlines coming in from Black Panther and then the Crazy Rich Asians movie. And after this happened, I was always thinking to myself, 
where is our Latino equivalent? Mm-hmm. Of course, I don't see myself in, in, in these movies because they're not speaking to me as a Latina, as a Hispanic Latina. So it literally came, the idea came about because I, I wasn't seeing myself in, in, in these films and I was yearning for that. So now let's talk a little bit about the article itself. Uh, how would you describe what this article is about? I think that the article is basically about the fact that a minority group, which is Latino, is an outside spender at the U.S. box office and why that shouldn't be. It's about the fact that Hollywood says it's being more diverse, but in reality, it's not being more inclusive. You know, there's a lot of people that are aspiring journalists today that are Hispanic that um, aren't able to tell their stories from their point of view because usually most of the editors that work at these news um, outlets, news platforms, they're usually white. And not every time do they understand where that's coming from because it doesn't speak to their own cultural experiences. Did you ever have, did you have any restraint? Did you have any challenges to get the story done? I think when you present the facts and when you present the statistics, there's no way that they can turn that that pitch down because... If you look at the numbers, Latinos are going to the movies. They're actually a major economic driver for the for, for films. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to representation, we're not there. So when you look at those numbers, there is a correlation. So you have the facts that are backing up that pitch. You're not you're not talking only from from your heart. You're also providing statistics for others to understand why that pitch matters and why this story matters not only to you but to other latinos that are also looking at the movies and and watching movies and 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 going to to the movie theaters what was the big takeaway that you took from the article when i first pitched the 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 article it was sort of uh, an observation it was just me seeing that there wasn't any representation of latinos as there was for Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians. While I was writing the article and and doing the interviews and talking to Anusha, I found out that it wasn't only me who thought about this. Hmm. There were others who were also thinking the same. For example, apart from from you, I spoke with Ben Lopez. He's the executive director. I love Ben Lopez. I've had him here on the podcast before. Awesome. Awesome. So he's the executive director of National Association of Latino Independent Producers. And the point he gave me and and his ideas were exactly what I was trying to convey in the article. So I think that when we find other Latino voices, the story tells itself. It's not not only an observation. It's It's a matter of find the right voices that can speak to the topic and you have it, you have it. But again, if there is no Latina journalist, will I have found you and Ben? Perhaps no. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, Sometimes I have a hard time, even for this podcast to find um, Latino voices simply because a, they don't promote themselves very much. So it's not like you put in Latino film critics and there's like blogs and blogs or, you know, Twitter accounts with the headline Latino film critic. 
or Latino journalists that that speak on pop culture, there's there's not that many of us. How were how did you was it challenging for you? Was it difficult for you to find Latino voices? I think it's it's difficult to get a hold of them, but it's not difficult to find voices. I think when you tap into the resources that you have, like, for example, I found you through a common friend. And I think that when you ask other Latinos for other people that they know or that they might know, I think we are a community that really helps each other a lot. Um, I'm currently looking for more Latinos for a different story that I am producing. And I literally just posted on Facebook, I am looking for this and this and this. There's hundreds of shares a lot of people tagging each other. I think it's a matter of having someone that it's sort of that, um, that captain, that captain that joins the team together, sort, sort of thing. So it's a matter of having Latinos in the right positions mm-hmm. for the right reasons. What do you think is the solution after doing all the research and writing about this of how we can get a crazy rich Asian Latino version uh, in the next you know, year or two? I think it's a matter of, it's going to be a community effort. It's going to be a barrio effort, as, as we would put it. Because it's not only that we need more talent, we're all, we also need more talent, more Latino talent that speaks to Latino audiences. Like you said, Oscar Isaac, he is from Guatemala, but yet again, he's not telling Latino stories. No, same thing with uh, Guillermo, Alejandro, Alfonso. Mm-hmm. And it's not that mm-hmm. they never have. And and I want right. to make sure that there's a lot of people that are going, wait a minute, but he, he did, he do my mother. I go, okay, yeah, that was at the beginning of his career. But once right. these guys crossed over into Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know, Alfonso kind of stopped doing Spanish language movies, stopped hiring right. Latino actors. Alejandro was doing that until a certain point and then Birdman and the Revenant came and he's allowed to tell other stories. But mm-hmm. when you're not propagating Latino actors on screen and you're not seeing brown skin on screen and everybody that is Latino is behind the scenes and we don't see them, exactly. you don't give them the ability to be interviewed uh, for whatever reasons. And Guillermo del Toro is doing superhero movies and horror movies that don't have any Hispanic um, cultural experiences whatsoever, then you might as well just be a white American director. You mm-hmm. might as well be Steven Spielberg. You know, and that's the beef I've been having with these three directors for so long is that there tends to be this this almost addiction to Hollywood to fit in so, so much that you don't want to scare away the Jewish, you know, directors that own Hollywood and, mm-hmm. and, and you want to fit in, you know, properly so you can get more work and you can tell the other different stories. Everybody knows that in Mexico, you know, uh, one out of every 10 movies is a Hollywood movie that they see over there. You know, American culture has completely, you know, engulfed the culture of Mexico. They don't appreciate their films as much. The industry mm-hmm. doesn't put out as many films, Mexican films, as they should. So... If you're young and you're Mexican, you're watching a Hollywood movie most of the time. So I think that these guys grew up with Hollywood movies and they wanted to tell Hollywood movies, but then they forgot about us. So it's one of the key problems that I have, like Oscar Isaac. I remember in an interview at a junket, I had asked him, I said, Oscar, are you Hispanic? And he's like, yeah. He goes, do you speak Spanish? He's like, yeah, I do. And I go, 
why are you doing a Spanish language film? I mean, look, mm-hmm. you could be working with the three Mexican directors. You could be working with Pedro Almodóvar. You could be working with so many, you know, there's so many great Spanish directors. Any interest? He's like, yeah, I'm actually, he was working with, I think, Jaume Coyet Serra on a movie. I believe that was his name, uh, the director, and it was in Spanish. And unfortunately, uh, it was greenlit. And then it fell through. So he never got to do it, but it was going to be his first Spanish language movie. But he didn't promote it. I had to pull teeth to get it out. He doesn't sell the culture well at all. Uh, I brought him in at NBC Latino for an interview, and we had spoken a little bit about his his roots. But again, he doesn't promote it if he's not asked. So it gives you this sense that maybe he doesn't want people to know about it because he wants to be more of a mainstream figure. Is that a management decision? Is that a PR decision? Is that his decision? And if we don't get all these directors and actors together to promote Latino stories because they're already inside the club, then we're going to be a failed you know, Latino community in the business because we're not helping. A hundred percent. And I think... You you put it beautifully in the sense that when he doesn't openly say that he is Hispanic, that he is Latino, it makes other Latinos like ourselves question, is he even proud? Right. Should, should right. we be proud? You know what I mean? I think that I was I was watching a documentary on Alfonso Guaron recently and the last part of the documentary was him saying that he doesn't want to be seen as a Latino director only. I understand and that. I, and and I found that interesting because the fact is that if it wasn't for his name, I wouldn't even know he's a he's a Latino director. Now, what kind of stories, look, you're from Puerto Rico and I happen to think that the the island of Puerto Rico has per probably per capita some of the most talented people on the planet it's incredible the amount of talent that comes out of puerto rico it's i mean if you really look at the three most impactful long-standing iconic hispanics in the united states today ricky martin jennifer lopez um and mark Mark anthony when you look at them they're from puerto rico yet they've transcended Latinos, they're global superstars that came out of this island, you know? So what kind of stories do you think today, from your perspective, you would want to see told on the big screen? One of them that I have is the reggaeton story. Yes, which I love, which I completely love and would love to go watch it. Right? Like a step up. Oh, yes. But with a reggaeton reggaeton. soundtrack, maybe taking place in Puerto Rico. Amazing. Right. Amazing. Right. Daddy Yankee, Nicky Jam, etc. All of them. I'm shocked that Daddy Yankee, Nicky Jam, J Balvin, and all these other reggaeton stars haven't already created a film that includes themselves. Mm -hmm. That is maybe like a friend, you know, story. I know Daddy Yankee did a Puerto Rico movie. Uh, I don't necessarily think it was about reggaeton, but it was about him and his life in Puerto Rico, which I liked. Didn't get a lot of support. Not many people saw it, but I enjoyed it and because uh, I felt it was authentic. Um, mm-hmm. What other stories outside of reggaeton would you like to see? I think we talked about this previously as well, but imagine the, story, the, the history of salsa. Salsa yeah. is... 
it's I mean it's world known as sort of this Latino dance. So why not tell that story instead of Americans just dancing, dancing salsa for the sake of it? Why not t- give them a little bit more uh, content and 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 learn about the history and the and the rich and beautiful history of what is salsa. Victoria Leandra co-wrote Bloomberg.com's recent article, Crazy Rich Success Leaves Latinos Waiting for Their Moment. Thanks for coming on the show, Victoria. Thank you, Jack. It was truly an honor for me. That's it for episode 90 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Jacqueline Colee and Victoria Leandra for stopping by, and I hope you guys enjoyed the conversations as well. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by sharing us on social media and telling all your friends about it. You can reach me on Twitter at JackRicoOfficial and on Instagram at JackRico. Also remember to tune in Saturday morning, October 6th on NBC to catch the premiere episode of my brand new TV show, Consumer 101. I'm Jack Rico. See you next week on another episode of Highly Relevant. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.